the animation podcast, May 5th, 2008. Go infinity! 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 Go <laughs> I'm just drawn that way. I'd like to work with you if you don't mind. You will join me for death. Oh, goody. Now it's like this, little britches. And beyond. The Animation Podcast is sponsored by AnimationMentor.com, the online animation school. Sign up for their free monthly newsletter for animation tips, student profiles, and access to my upcoming Animation Mentor exclusive animation podcast at animationmentor.com. Hey everybody, this is Clay. Welcome back to the Animation Podcast. Uh, First, I just want to say I know that there are lots of ways for you to spend your time, and the fact that you're listening to this show makes me very happy, so I thank you for spending your time with me. And I get emails almost every day from people around the world who say they listen to the shows while they animate, and I couldn't receive a better compliment. So thanks for that feedback. Of course, I credit any success of the Animation Podcast to the guests, and I think this show will be a great addition to the catalog. I've known Ken Duncan for a while now, so his introduction will be a bit from my perspective. On Pocahontas, he supervised the animation of Thomas, and when I moved into the animation department as a rough in-betweener, it was on Hercules. And Ken was supervising Hercules' love interest, the anti-heroine Meg. I in-between quite a bit on Meg and worked for Ken even more when he animated Jane and Tarzan. And once I was an animator, I caught up with Ken again on Treasure Planet where I worked for him on his characters Captain Amelia and Scroop. After that, Ken animated at DreamWorks as a sequence supervisor on Shark Tale. And after a short time with real effects, Ken recently started his own animation studio, Duncan Studio. So here it is, part one of my interview with Ken Duncan. So according to the Internet Movie Database, you've been animating for 24 years professionally. Does that sound about right? That's correct, yes. (laughs) And uh, do you feel uh, like a veteran of animation? That's a long time. Uh, Yeah, I feel like I've been doing it a long time, but I just think there's so much that can be done. I feel like I haven't done very much at all, funny enough. Funny? Funny enough. Oh, <laughs> I haven't done enough funny animation. Actually, I haven't, even at Disney, I felt like maybe there were other things that could be done, you know, get a chance to do a little bit more cartoony stuff or whatnot, but you'd sort of get perhaps a little pigeonholed in doing certain kinds of characters or projects would take so long that you, you know, you only had so much time to work on so many films at the studio. And it's kind of cool that they're doing shorts now and you get an opportunity to animate different styles and, and perhaps different types of characters. But mm-hmm sort of something that I wish I had an opportunity to do there. Right, right. And if you go way back, so you went to Sheridan, right? Yeah, Sheridan College. In early 80s, I'm guessing? Mid-80s. Mid-80s. Not that old. Yeah. 1984 <laughs> is when I left, I believe. Okay. And who are some classmates there? Uh, the world-famous Rajan Bordage, who's a head of story over at DreamWorks. The Zondag brothers, who are at Disney. Um, who else? John Hooper. Chris Labonte, a couple of guys in Vancouver who have studios, Blair Peters. So, you know, guys that are still in the business. And uh, the year ahead of us was uh, 
Actually, the year ahead of us was Reg Bordage and Harland Williams, the world-famous comedian, <laughs> and Spaz Williams. You went to Sheridan, but how did you end up there? Did you know when you were younger that you were going to do animation? Well, kind of when I was really young, of course, like everyone, most guys in animation, they tended to draw a lot. And uh, I was really into the Charlie Brown comic strip. And when I was about eight years old, I, I told my sister that I wanted to read up on this cartoonist named Charles Schultz. And she said, no, 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 you should read about Walt Disney. He was the best cartoonist of them all. <laughs> so uh, I went to the school library and there's like a little book that was published in, in the 60s that was written by Bob Thomas. It was written for kids. It was on the life of Walt Disney. And I just got so mesmerized by his life, you know, the things that he had done in his career. And then the Christopher Finch book on the art of Walt Disney came out around the same time, or in 1972. And again, I was mesmerized by all the artwork. And so it's, I wasn't necessarily seeing the cartoons a lot, except for maybe on Sunday evening on The Wonderful World of Disney. But a lot of the artwork really fascinated me. And I kept drawing and drawing. And, uh, you know, as years went by, I was actually fortunate enough to go to an arts high school. You know, we refined our my drawing skills. We had life drawing every day. We had a lot of drawing classes, and I kept reading about animation and reading that you had to refine your, your drawing abilities. You know, and <clears throat> as I got older, I kept reading about animation. You know, I'd go to this, the library and look at book encyclopedias, and there'd always be, you know, they'd have photos of a cell painter, and I was always fascinated by the different people that worked in it and the different departments. And then Preston Blair's book on animation I was fascinated by. And at the back of the book, it has a little diagram on how to how to build an animation table. And I would build it and not quite understand how the little metal peg holes worked. And, and, and even in the art school, people thought I was a bit odd that I'd be interested in cartooning at all. But um, after high school, I was fortunate enough to go to Sheridan for a couple of years and then uh, eventually into the business. So when you were cartooning, you're doing the art classes, but you're also cartooning on your own, probably? Yeah, I probably stepped away a little bit from the actual cartooning part of it. I tried to get more into life drawing and uh -huh. drawing, you know, based off of reality mm -hmm. and doing a lot of still life sort of artwork. And, you know, some of those drawing classes, like the first year of the drawing class at the school, uh, they had us draw the basic, you know, shapes, you know, a sphere, uh, cylinder etc for a whole year that's all we would draw we would paint it we would paper cut it you know do paper cutouts uh -huh. and they really just were trying to train you to see you know to look and see what you know and get on paper what you were actually looking at rather than just preconceived ideas of what you were looking at they really forced you to to look uh -huh. which actually helped in animation because a lot of it's about observations yeah and the uh, cartoony stuff you said charles schultz before but did you have any one that you were kind of emulating or did you just kind of i think a lot of cartooning growing up was really based off of what we saw on tv i have a comic book here in my office that i did when i was eight years old with uh with a friend it's uh 50 pages and we we did all kinds of stories in it and it's a lot of cops and robber type stuff but a lot of it was influenced probably by the flintstones and a lot of stuff on television at the time a lot of saturday morning cartoons so, and then the, the, the uh, Sunday papers, which were uh, Charlie Brown. Mm -hmm. So a lot of it was just stuff that you'd see. And, of course, Warner Brothers. Uh, that, that we got a lot of it on television at the time. So, so it's a mixture of those three elements. Hmm. So after you went to Sheridan, uh, were you planning on, like, eventually working at Disney? When you thought of animation, did you just think, I'm just going to be an animator? Or did you have a, a place in mind? It's a great question. Um, yeah, I guess I was so fascinated by the artwork. Like I said, I, I didn't really see a lot of the films growing up. Uh, for some reason, we missed out. You know, they would come out every seven years, and for some reason, I didn't see a lot of the films. 
That's a damn good question. <laughs> <laughs> what were you going to do? <laughs> I know. I like the idea of the I like I love the idea of bringing stuff to to life. You know, the idea that you could do a drawing and then seeing it move and and be a character. But by the time I got into college, uh, my brother who is who actually was in New York taking uh, acting classes at the uh, Neighborhood Playhouse, which was kind of a sort of a big acting school. Uh, Sanford Meisner was teaching, you know, the method acting, et cetera. And he, he would kind of visit me when I was in college and talk about some of these concepts behind acting. And that actually really intrigued me. You know, things like, you know, people wear masks every day. You know, it depends on who you're talking to and what the situation is. You sort of reveal a different aspect of yourself. And, and this kind of intrigued me. And I thought it'd be really interesting to try and put that into animation. And then you'd read things about Bill Teitler and he, you know, he was reading books by Boleslavsky, a student of Stanislavsky. And, you know, he had done some really cool stuff. And I thought, well, it'd be kind of neat to try out some of these ideas that these guys were experimenting with, with character animation. So the idea for me was to somehow get onto feature films, because that's pretty much the only place you can experiment with, with these concepts. Mm -hmm. And actually, before I, act, I went to Sheridan College, uh, you know, I'm from Ottawa, Canada, and they have an animation festival there. And in 1982, they, I believe it was 82 when Tron came out, at the festival they had some CG experts come through and, and give lectures on what they were doing. And uh, Bob Abel came in to talk about Tron. And coincidentally, Frank and Ollie were there because they had just published a book called The Illusion of Life. And I had just purchased it and um, was totally digging what they were writing about. And when I went to the festival, I saw Frank and Ollie. I, I couldn't believe that they were there. And then I went to the Robert Abel stuff. And, and for some reason, I thought it would be cool to mix the knowledge of these older guys and what they did with character animation at Disney and some of this new technology. Because at, at the festival, they also had some smaller uh, boutique studios showing some of their work. And a lot of them were experimenting at that time. And it was kind of cool. And I don't know if it's because in Canada, we, we got the National Film Board as well, which was all about animators experimenting and, and different filmmakers experimenting with different styles and different ideas. Norman McLaren, uh, one of the first CG films ever was made at the National Film Board, I believe, in 1974. And it was kind of a wireframe film called uh, The Hunger or Hunger. And so growing up, we'd see all these different things and different styles, Frederick Back. So when I was in art school and having an interest in animation, which was a visual medium, doing art in school, and then seeing what was going on with that CG stuff at that time, it was really fascinating to me. And of course, it was just, I felt like it was just me by myself because there was nobody really that much interested in animation that I knew. Then getting to the college was kind of interesting because you were hooking up with people that had an interest in the same art form. And remember, at that time, there was, there was not a lot of money in the business. You know, it was really a bunch of cartoon geeks that liked animation mm -hmm. that wanted to do it. You know, there wasn't a ton of money floating around to, to make the films. So did you spend four years at Sheridan? I spent two years. Uh, it was a three-year program at the time, and after two years, uh, there was an interest in maybe trying to get work. Nelvana had put the call out to look for some animators for Strawberry Shortcake, believe it or not. <laughs> and uh, I think, yeah, That's one nice. of the teachers at the college told us about it, so we, you know, we went to Nelvana, got a little test to do. We did a test, a bunch of us, and we we applied for a job, and... I believe Charlie Bonifacio, who's an amazing animator who's still in the business, hired me and a couple of other guys to, to, do, to do some work there. So that was in 84. And at the same time, I had heard through Reg Bordage that a studio in France was making an Asterix feature film, and they were looking for artists. 
And one of my teachers at the time, Bill Spears, uh, was going to go over there as a supervising animator. And I was talking to him, or I showed him my portfolio to get on as, as an assistant. And so after some time, he hired me to be his assistant. Mm -hmm. And I also got the job at Nelvana sort of around the same time. So I went to Nelvana for about a month knowing that I was going to be going to Paris like a couple of months later. Mm -hmm. So that was like September of 84. There's actually a whole generation of uh, Canadian animators from Nelvana that worked on a film called Rock and Roll that I think are, are amazing. You know, Chuck Gamage, uh, Robin Budd. They, they were actually learning animation at a, a blazing speed at that time. Uh, you know, Nelvana had done some half hours in the 70s that were pretty good, but then by the time they got to the feature, they, they were doing an amazing job. Hmm. Outside of Disney, there was only uh, Don Bluth and Nelvana doing sort of high-quality feature work. And those guys are amazing. They're still amazing. And uh, learned a lot from those guys. Hmm. And uh, I think I asked Nick about this, but what is it with Canadians and animation? I don't know. I don't know if it's, uh, it's the British tr tradition. I don't know because, you know, the British are into comedy and comics and cartooning and I don't know if it's those roots it's combined. The, the film board is a the big film part board of it. is a big part of it. Being close to the United States and getting all the you know the TV shows and the cartoons and mm -hmm. I think it's just a combination of both cultures and uh, and the National Film Board for sure, which is yeah. a government sponsored studio. But they they were very creative and and did a lot of animation, so it's kind of cool because you get a lot of combination of of information. You're getting American sensibility. You're getting some artsy sort of stuff from the film board and then some British humor. Mm -hmm. And uh, d did you ever have any reservations about leaving school early or was it kind of like as soon as you could, everyone would just get No, a job? You, you know, when you're young, you think you, you know it all. So I think after a couple of years, you know, you, you didn't think there was much use for the school. So you're trying to get a job and, and making an impact on the industry. So, you know, that's one thing about being young. You're, you're very cocky about moving forward into things that you don't really know about. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that, that's just, yeah, it's a great thing actually. Yeah. I, I'm actually still doing that a little bit today. <laughs> <laughs> so you went and worked on a couple of Asterix films, right? Yeah, working in Paris, again, that was cool. There was a lot of guys from all over Europe. Uh, you know, there wasn't enough animators in Paris alone to do the feature. So we had some some guys come down from London, uh, some Spanish guys, Hungarians, French people. Uh, the Britsy brothers uh, were my first bosses. They directed the film, the first film. Okay. And uh, I was an assistant, like I said, to Bill. And then on the second film, I was actually in the layout department doing character poses. So I would get layouts and I would do three or four broad poses uh, for the scenes, which mm -hmm. to me was actually a great learning experience to sort of nail down some posing uh, in a simplistic manner. And it was kind of cool having the creator of Asterix come through and go over some drawings occasionally. That was kind of a treat. Yeah. And uh, again, there were guys that I learned a lot from there. There was a guy named Zoltan from Hungary who was an amazing draftsman. Uh, Mike Smith, who came down from London, amazing artist and storyboard artist and designer. Uh, Rob Stavenhagen, who came from Holland, who's an amazing animator, even today. And it was just a great mix of people. And, you know, after I was there for about almost two years, I was in a cafe, a French cafe, and on television, there was a little animated commercial, a toilet paper commercial with these two mice. And it was so beautifully animated. I, I asked people, you know, who animated it, thinking it was a French studio. And one of the British guys mentioned that it was uh, Oscar Grillo studio that was in London that did it. And uh, I was like, wow, I want, I want to work for that guy. Because uh, they had a certain flair that I hadn't seen at that time. 
And fortunately enough, I mean, when I when I left the Paris studio, I just sort of packed my bags and moved to London without a job. I just kind of went there just with a portfolio and I was going to knock on doors. And I was fortunate enough to work initially at Pizzazz for about a month with Eric Goldberg's studio, mm-hmm. doing some assistant work. But again, I, I really wanted to animate, so I continued to look around and but eventually I knocked on some uh, doors and Oscar Grillo uh, hired me to do some animation on a series of beer commercials. It was Hagar the Horrible. And he he just handed me a whole commercial to do. So I sort of laid it out, cut the editorial. At that time, if you filled out your X sheets and moved audio, et cetera, around, you had to send, send your X sheets out to a sound editing uh, studio and they would recut it, send it back, and then you'd, you'd cut an animatic to your boards. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of cool working in London. It was very dynamic, and it was great that Oscar would just throw you an opportunity like that to to, to pull it through. Uh, so you ended up animating on it, and he'd he'd give you great opportunities uh, until you couldn't do it anymore. <laughs> How do you mean? <clears throat> I think he would just throw you here. You know, here's a whole commercial to animate, or here's a whole commercial to direct, and uh-huh. if you pulled it off. Then you pulled it off and he would give you more stuff. Right. And then if you sort of stumbled, he could see that you were stumbling and probably he would help you finish it. Hmm. Then probably wouldn't give you that same opportunity the next time out. Right, right. And, and he was great that way. Is he would come up to you. It would be like a Wednesday afternoon. He'd say, you know, tomorrow I need a, an illustration of the interior of a 1800s Bostonian living room. And then you'd be sort of a little confused on how to do it. But you'd sit down and... And there's enough reference around and you'd have some, you know, from seeing films, et cetera, you'd start doing these drawings. Then he would sort of ink a character in, put it, put him on top, uh, have somebody paint the background and send it off to an agency. But it was a great thing where you'd, you'd be doing something you didn't think you could do. The next day he might have you do a UPA back, style background mm-hmm. and you'd have a day to, to do the sketch of a whole city block or, or something like that. And uh, he would constantly throw you these things, maybe seeing that you had the potential and he would sort of see how far he could go by giving you stuff. Oscar was really brilliant in that, you know, he could design in any style himself. He can draw like nobody's business. And But he was always talking about literature and seeing things in real life and really having life experiences. He wasn't just sort of, he wasn't totally into just animation. He was into life and he saw animation as sort of a, an artistic uh, expression of, of life. So he was actually great to, to listen to at, at lunches. And uh, I learned a lot from him. Even years later, I would always think about that experience, which was only about seven months in his studio. But mm-hmm. I learned a ton uh, working with him. And uh, he's got a blog now. He's got a blog, yeah. <laughs> and you can you can see all of his great artwork that that I would see every day. I mean, his commercials are really brilliant as well. Mm-hmm. It'd be great to see him have additional impact on a feature film. Or other films. Yeah, yeah. So after Oscar Grillo's studio, did you uh, go to Bluth after that, or did you bounce around some more? No, I was what I was twenty. Let me see, twenty-one years old at the time, and and I was working in London and working a lot and getting pasty white and yeah. So I, I really wanted to just sort of experience a bit more life and wanted to move to a more warmer climate. So I I knew some guys that I worked with in Paris. And they had opened a studio in Madrid, so I, I talked talked to them, and I, I moved down to Madrid and worked on a, I don't even remember what I worked on, but a, a feature that was being done in England, and they were just sort of getting work for higher stuff. Let's see what you worked on. Uh, <laughs> I think the BFG for Cosgrove Hall. Yes, the big friendly giant. Big friendly giant. So we got a, a couple of sequences down there and uh, did some animation. 
but we probably spent more time not working than working. So it was uh, language ever a, a barrier when you worked in Paris or worked in Spain? Or did you? Uh, Paris was interesting because there were so many people from different countries who kind of sometimes traveled around in a group and there was always somebody that knew French more than everybody else. But <laughs> over time, I remember, you know, a lot of times you would pantomime stuff, you know? Uh -huh. You could actually communicate with very simple words and pantomiming. So. So I actually thought about that when I did animation is like, what are you communicating to an audience that may not understand what's being said, you know? Mm -hmm. And I, I always got into silent films because of that. But uh, Spain was a little bit tougher, but I, you know, I got to learn the language. Uh, you know, I'd end up maybe getting a girlfriend from, from that country and she would teach me some of the language and uh, we'd sort of, you know, I'd, I'd get by. Uh -huh. Language wise. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Madrid was a really cool city to live in. Madrid and Paris were amazing. Beautiful architecture, fantastic people, mm -hmm. and they really do uh, uh, work to live. And animation, I mean, you just look at, at the different styles of American versus European animation or even just comics. I mean, you can almost look at a drawing and say, that's European, yep. you know, and that's American. That's the one thing that I got into because my first job was really in Europe is Asterix itself is really cool. Yeah. I would go to the French comic book stores and it would be full of artwork that's amazing. Mm -hmm. And uh, you have this uh, comic in your office, the little dirty French guy. Yeah, yeah, Franquin did a character called Gaston Lagaffe. Yeah, Gaston. And I always saw that and I went, that'd be great to animate. Yeah. You know, I'm surprised people aren't animating his stuff more. <laughs> but they did make Marsupilami. Um, he did a series called L'Idée Noire, which is uh, sort of black humor. Mm -hmm. But there was all kinds of styles at that time. Uh, Hugo Pratt. Um, just really great draftsmen, and because it was cartooning, it was really kind of cool. Mm -hmm. And yet, their layout it was almost like filmic. I mean, they they could draw things at different angles, and they were really cinematic sometimes. Yeah. So it was a really great inspiration. When I got to London, of course, it was just the other artists in the studio. You got to remember, at that time in the mid '80s, you had the Purdoms, you had Eric Goldberg, you had Oscar, you had Richard Williams. They were all very unique guys, and they were all amazing artists and all, animators. All in the same area. All right? in the same area, yeah. You could yeah. walk down the street, and then, you know, pubs on Friday night, everybody's getting together from their studios and, you know, having a good time. It was actually kind of a cool environment. It was kind of like, um, it was a community. Mm -hmm. It wasn't, sure, there was some competition, but it was more of a, a family community. It was kind of cool. That sort of changed, I understand, years later when... Uh, Amblin or some of the big studios moved in. They sort of absorbed a lot of people from the small studios mm -hmm. and a lot of the small studios shut down. But um, it was really kind of cool at that time. The different artists that were working in the studios at that time, uh, all the commercials were being done by ink and paint. They were done with uh, hand inking. And it was kind of cool to see the artists do stuff on cell with brushes and pens mm -hmm. that you don't get anymore. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of neat to see that art form at that time. Yeah. Actually, going back to that toilet paper commercial and when, that I saw uh -huh. when I was in France, it was animated by a guy named Russell Brooks. He actually worked for Oscar for those commercials. And to me, he's actually a brilliant animator. His his animation style is very cartoon. He's probably kind of more in a Fred Moore vein mm -hmm. where he's got a natural talent and it's got a really cartoon sensibility and it's really appealing. So that's another great guy that that uh, we got to work with. And uh, That's the thing I think like... Uh, especially for someone like me, I've only worked at Disney. Like, it's like my only job. And so that's my whole like animation world in terms of like people I see and hearing all this, there are so many great animators that don't work in a big studio that are just talented artists that do the thing. And 
They may work yeah. on commercials or small projects, but there's a lot of great animators. Yeah, a lot of great animators around the world, you know. And, you know, some of them are making short films. Maybe they're more independent filmmakers mm -hmm. and their ideas are amazing. You know, F Frederick Back, you know, making uh, Man of Planted Trees. You know, he's a great filmmaker, mm -hmm. director. His animation's really cool. It's just not a Disney sensibility. Yeah. Uh, but there are people in Europe that, that have a great sensibility that perhaps wouldn't work as well in a big studio you know they're more independent and they've got their own methodology and their own style actually when i lived in spain i did have a bit of an obsession to try and get onto a feature film to experiment with some of the ideas that i was mentioning before you know sort of the method acting or trying to create a performance in a feature film working on commercials in london was kind of cool but you know you never really got to explore a character for very long uh when i was in spain i remember getting somehow uh Xerox copies of the Art Babbitt lectures that he gave at uh, Richard Williams Studio. Mm -hmm. And, you know, of course, they were like 10th generation Xeroxes and kind of hard to read. But for me personally, there's so much information in those notes. I mean, all of the principles for animation really can come out of those notes, you know, breaking joints and overlap, et cetera, et cetera. So again, I was like in Spain trying to, you know, I was experimenting even on the film that we're working on down there with some of these ideas. Mm -hmm. And I think actually Richard Williams is one of the key factors in helping with the resurrection of modern animation. You know, there's different people at different times, but I'd say Richard Williams' influence because he was giving those lectures and having Art Babbitt and those guys come out, you know, um, Ken Harris, I believe. Mm -hmm. And guys like Oscar Grillo and Eric were working for Richard Williams and they were sort of learning all that information from those guys. So, so and they ended up helping or influencing the industry also. So I really think that moment in the early 70s by Richard Williams was kind of a key, yeah. key factor. Yeah. He comes up in almost every interview I do. Yeah. He's, he's part of some animator's life at some point. Yeah, crazy Canadian. <laughs> Is he Canadian? Yeah, he's, uh, from, he's from Toronto. Uh, that's why. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, you know, reading those notes and, and again trying to get that fire going to, to, to do character animation, I had heard that Bluth... Studios was, was in Ireland or going to Ireland. I can't remember when they arrived. And, you know, I was getting a little antsy to, to try and, and work on longer projects. So the Zondag brothers, who I knew from college, were at, were at Bluth. So I, I made a call to them, and they were interested in hiring people. So I went up for an interview and uh, ended up moving up to Ireland to work on uh, one of the Bluth films, which, you know, to me, that was amazing to be working for an American feature film studio. Mm -hmm. uh, that was in 87, like early 87. And, uh, you know, when I was in college, or when most of us in college in Canada never, ever dreamed of actually working at Disney because we assumed there was CalArts, you know, they had to pick up the litter of the best in the world, you know, and we were just sort of like guys up in Canada at college. Uh -huh. So we never really assumed that we would work at Disney so for me to go from Spain to, to work for an American company was kind of a big thing for me. Mm -hmm. Did you uh, go to Bluth as an animator? I went to Bluth. I got hired as a cleanup artist. Mm -hmm. And I sat down, you know, in the basement, I think, uh, starting to do some in-betweens. And about an hour later, John Pomeroy sort of popped up at my desk. And he said, hey, you want to do some animation? So and an hour? Yeah, after <laughs> about an hour. That's a pretty good promotion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, th those lines must have been real nice. Uh, <laughs> but 
I said, sure. And uh, it was for Land Before Time. It was like the last few months of that production. And uh, they handed me a scene in which there was an earthquake and there were 35 dinosaurs about, <laughs> about the size of a penny who were running running Sorry, during the earthquake. I don't, I don't mean to laugh at your early successes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so that, that was my uh, my introduction to oh, feature. Oh. So much for all that method so acting. John Palmer, I was like, perfect. <laughs> I, I have my victim. I, I was the guy. So much for method acting. <laughs> But that was cool, you know. Um, John was there. Uh, Linda Miller was there. Lorna Pomeroy at the time, or Lorna Cook. No, Lorna Pomeroy was there. Uh, some pretty good draftsmen, good animators. And over the next year and a half, I kind of worked in their methodology. The one thing I didn't really sort of think was the correct way by, re you know, if you read The Illusion of Life, it's, you know, they really thought of themselves as actors and they had a character and you'd read a, about Milk Call working on X character or this, this or that character. Whereas at Bluth, they sort of had it a bit differently. The animators were working in groups, but they wouldn't get a specific character all the time. You may get a, a scene with a character that you, you animate a lot, but you would actually animate all the characters in the scene. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to work on one character and give a performance. You know, that, that was, you know, you only have so much time on a film a year to do, to do the animation. So I thought it'd be kind of better to work on one character. Yeah. And really, the only people that were doing that were, was Disney. And that was really the objective, was to work for Disney, because they were the best at it. And again, you've got to think of the mid and, and late 80s. There was nobody doing feature films except Disney and Bluth mm -hmm. and uh, you know a couple of places here and there. Right. So your chances of getting in on something were pretty pretty slim. You know? So you know, being a good draftsman and being fast and trying to do good character animation was the way you were going get, to mm -hmm. get anywhere. So. So where did you really learn your, uh, aside from the acting and the draftsmanship, uh, the process of animating? Was there anyone in particular that showed you, like, this is how you, you start a shot and God, how you break good, it down and how you chart things? That's a good question. Because you're very technical when it comes to, like, charting. And you can, I mean, I remember I worked with Ken. And uh, <laughs> there would be charts where you would give me, like, 24 in-betweens between two keys, and it would work. And you learned that somewhere. Okay. That's a good question. <laughs> that's a good question. That's okay. <laughs> where, where did I learn that? I don't know if it's working with all these different people that you'd pick up different stuff where you maybe mm -hmm. on this kind of a character or this kind of animation you're going to experiment with. You know, like even on Tarzan, Glenn was doing some action stuff and it was all on ones and it was thirds and I didn't really use thirds that much. Although Dave Brewster, when I worked with Dave, I really liked, you know, Dave actually worked on the first job that I did, which was the strawberry shortcake stuff because he was a, Nelvana animator at the time mm -hmm. and then he ended up working in Ireland and then Disney but uh, he worked in a very rough style that I was it was impressive because his final animation looked so smooth and slick and had a nice appeal to it and he 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 used he would shoot things on threes and things like that that I'd never really seen before people usually usually shot on twos and fours and eights mm -hmm. So, you know, you see a guy doing stuff and you experiment. You, oh, I'm going to do a scene and I'm going to try that. And, and, you know, I think it's just a combination of working with a lot of different people and, and experimentation. And that's, that to me is one of the funnest things about animation is experimentation. And that's, that's the spirit of animation. You know, even, even when you think you've learned a lot of stuff, if you, if you think that that's all that there is, then it's not a good place to be at. You know, mm -hmm. it's like, Okay, I've done that. Let's experiment with trying something this way, and and really trying to come up with new new ways of doing stuff. Drawing wise, I think I really like the way that um, some guys were just good draftsmen, 
in such that Russell Brooks, the guy in London, was great at just sort of kissing the paper with mm-hmm. a lot of his drawings. He would just sort of rough out really simple lines and idea, shoot it, and it would all be there without a lot of rough drawing and a lot of like overworking. Yeah. So he was, you know, he was obviously visualizing, and he had a lot of the ideas in his head. So that's something that I was really interested in trying to do. So a lot of my stuff probably has that flavor, mm-hmm. sort of like really sort of light touches to the paper, right? And not a lot of too much, not too much information right away. And uh, shooting tests, and then looking at tests, and then looking at the mistakes in the test. Like sometimes you might do things that are incorrect, but whether it was subconscious or not. You right. can use them. The happy you know what accidents. I mean? Yeah, the happy accidents. Yeah. I, I really enjoy that kind of stuff. Yeah. And then when you're tying it down, you you know, you you finesse it and make it better. But I don't know. I don't know if it's reading the illusion of life. It's just the idea of getting as much information from the director, understanding what the character's role in the film is, really having a lot of information before you even touch the pencil to the paper, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So really it's, then it just sort of, you know, it flows out of you as much as possible. And you can actually get into the zone where you're just like, you're, you're literally sweating as you're animating. You're just, you're just putting it out on paper. It's sort of living sort of in your head for a long time. And then mm-hmm. you're just sort of getting it out there. So it's kind of that method thing. And, and, and the acting stuff for me was really trying to identify how a character lives in a situation and how would this character react at that moment? You know, how do they react from a different character uh, are they by themselves? If they're by themselves, is there something that they do that nobody else sees? I constantly am asking questions as I'm animating. Mm-hmm. Or if I look at a sequence, I'm like, well, does that make sense? Is that logical? Could that be different than the sequence before? Where are they coming from before? Are they more sad? And and therefore, what I'm looking for is ways of communicating the character differently in different sequences. But it's really trying to give your audience a texture to the character so that when they're watching the whole film, they see different things at different times of the character. To me, there's nothing more boring than, you know, you work out a walk cycle or, you know, and that's the character, you know, that, that it's going to be the same throughout the whole film. Well, your audience doesn't get to see different ways or different different parts of a character's personality. Mm-hmm. So what you want to do is you want to understand f- physics enough to be able to animate things that are convincing. You want to understand when it was 2D. You want to understand drawing and design so that you can draw things that you've seen in your imagination and not be stuck by using the same sort of techniques over and over again because you can't quite draw that thing that you want to do. It's understanding the characters, the story, how a character fits into the story. Uh, and it's sort of putting all that stuff together is, is so that when you're sitting down at your desk, it sort of is, is planned out in your head in a way. Yeah. Uh, and that helps for me working with a crew underneath is then I can go, mm, this is really really soft, nice, subtle moments for the character. You know, there's this guy in my unit that's really great at doing that sort of stuff. I'm going to save that for him or, you know. So it's really trying to plan it out way in advance. And, you know, it doesn't always work that way because of, you know, uh, inventory, et cetera, et cetera, or, or, or somebody moves off your unit into another unit. But I think it's better that way if you plan it because then it really feels like a, a cohesive character, you know. I've worked on other projects where you only do – you don't get to do the or supervise the whole character. You you supervise a sequence, and so characters sort of behave differently than they should. I feel in different sequences, you know, yeah. like it's not really that's not really their personality, and and a lot of it isn't just animating what they say. It's really that body language, you know. There's a lot of stuff in in uh, 
in Jane and Tarzan, it was fun to animate because she'd be acting in a bravado way, but her body language would be in a very fearful way, for instance. So, so it's great to animate uh, against what they're saying, and and it's great for an audience that's younger. They can they can sense that the character is fearful without understanding maybe what they're saying. Mm-hmm. So they get a gist of, and in other countries as well, if they don't yeah. understand the language, but. And it's that whole pantomime and silent movie sort of acting stuff that's kind of interesting to me. You know, I've animated some characters in films, but I'd really love to explore some even more sophisticated acting styles, mm-hmm. you know? Like, that's the cool thing about acting in general. Uh, over the years, it develops in in real film, you know? Yeah. There's acting styles in the 30s. There's acting styles. And there's even different acting styles today. So mm-hmm. it'd be kind of neat to experiment with some some different stuff. I do love the idea that animation is the exaggeration of reality, not totally a copy of reality so doing stuff that's over the top even close to Tex Avery style to me is kind of cool mm-hmm. you know it's it somehow can have a surreal quality you know the Fleischer stuff has a completely surreal quality to it but it's you know it's really cool to watch because that's animation yeah. you can't do it in real life yeah so even doing some of the Disney stuff you know it's trying to find moments where you're exaggerating the character and going a bit bit broader than just sort of uh you know, I do have to say that we did shoot live action reference a lot of the times in the Disney films. Uh, but it wasn't rotoscoping. It was, you know, maybe the actors had ideas or you would direct the actor some, you know, with specific ideas and they would sort of add to it. So you could pull concepts from the actor or you could not use any of it, whatever you needed to do. But if you were, then you'd have to really understand what, what you wanted to do with that character. So you knew what to pull or, or push. Mm-hmm. Uh, we haven't really got into CG, but in terms of supervising a character on a CG film, it's different. It's it's different than 2D because it's not so much about controlling the way they look, which it's still part of it. But um, do you find you can work the same way? You know, when we went to Shark Tale, we developed some tools that were very that allowed me to work. Spe- you know, specifically me and whoever else wanted to work that way. But I ended up working with a digital X sheet and digital timing charts. So I could use, I could do post tests and show a director a post test and we could retime quickly stuff in this X sheet. And I like the idea of an apprenticeship system. Mm -hmm. So we actually worked with some of the former cleanup artists sort of in that capacity and tried to bring some of them up with some animation. So I like, I, I tried to do the CG stuff very similar to the methodology in 2D because it it works, you know, uh-huh. for the for the feature films for 70 years, it, it worked. So, so you would do the stuff like uh, leaving a lot of the stuff for someone else to finish up? Well, it's, it's maybe a little complicated to explain, but our X sheet tool, you could do post-tests and then you could sketch, you could actually sketch the timing charts on it. Uh-huh. And then I would... So I would get that scene approved. You know, it was it, it was pretty well broken down. It was keys and breakdowns, much like a 2D test. Mm-hmm. And then I would sketch the timing charts on that tool, and then we would I would have an assistant pick up the Maya scene, open it, and do the, the 3D timing charts. We actually had 3D timing charts. So they would do that, and then they would animate secondary action and maybe another character in the shot. Um and it was just a way for them to work with a supervisor and understand what timing is and yeah. what animation is yeah. without the responsibility of, of uh, putting out footage mm-hmm. right at the start of their career. Yeah. And do you still work that way when you can? or uh, Whenever I can. Yeah. So what, what would happen is then I would be able – I'd be freed up to start roughing out another acting scene. Mm-hmm. And they were working on the in-between stuff and looking for any penetration and all that sort of stuff that happens with CG stuff. 
So I, I just like the idea of bringing of the apprenticeship system. And then you, you actually see certain people sort of excel. Some guys, by the end of the film, they were doing full animated scenes. You know, they had moved beyond being a, an assistant. But we would constantly talk about what the scene was and what the purpose of the scene was, what the character was thinking. And, you know, it was beyond just the technical stuff, mm-hmm. you know, which is so common. Yeah is, yeah, this is a spline curve and, you you know, this, that, and the other. But it was really trying to get them to think about the process. You know, what is a pose test? Why why are you doing a pose this way, et cetera, et cetera. And sort of giving them some tools to, to approach a shot in, in a convincing way. Mm-hmm. You know, John Chris Felucci, I, I've never actually met him, but, you know, he's got some great points on his, his blog. <clears throat> you know, and he writes a lot about the, you know, the Warner Brothers guys. Uh, and the cartoonists in the 20s. And they had a certain understanding of the spirit of animation, which is, you know, the exaggeration aspect of it. And I, I think guys like Chuck Jones, they thought about stuff just as much as anybody else at Disney. You know, mm-hmm. They just communicated it in a different way. They just used the same principles in an exaggerated way or, you know, even a more limited way. But they communicated ideas with the characters, and they really wanted to have fun with those personalities and they understood those personalities through and through. You know, I think their animation style has even influenced people today more than some of the Disney stuff. No, probably, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the Disney stuff kind of became a bit homogenized yeah. and was the, a refinement of the same style for kind of the last 30 years, the Nine Old Men. But, uh, and, you know, the, the original Disney features, you know, like Pinocchio, each guy, like Bill Titler or Fred Moore, had their own approach. I mean, they're almost like different characters or even different styles of animation. You know, Stromboli is much more different than Pinocchio. Mm-hmm. But I kind of like that. Yeah. Then it makes some unique personalities. Yeah. I mean, towards the end, it was kind of like uh, Ward, but, Ward Kimball was like the only guy still doing his yeah. own thing. But for me, like if you look at uh, Sword in the Stone, although it's slick animation and they all look, all the characters look like they were animated by one guy, uh, I'm not actually sure that I prefer that. Mm-hmm. I actually like that each character had a uniqueness in their animation styles. Yeah. It kind of made them, you know, special. Mm-hmm. It's true. And that's something that, like, I mean, I guess it's by design, but when you do a 2D feature and every supervisor is doing their own character and kind of doing their own take on the design, you, you get that. You can't help it, but on a CG film, it's... Yeah, the, the thing about CG is I wish we could get more influence of the artist into the process. Mm-hmm. I wish, you know as much as possible the animator be part of the design process and that the creation of the character at character you know they're going to want to experiment with how it moves they're going to want to have some influence on how the rigging happens uh they're going to want to be able to communicate to the crew how it works but that means having a character you know and that's that means trying to find uniqueness or unique ways of acting like i I always think of that film uh napoleon dynamite the main character in that film acts in such a unique way. You know, he's got his eyes are half are closed a lot of the time when he's talking. Yeah. Well, you know, in in when you learn CG animation, it's like, well, you've got to look at that's got to look at this. You know, you've got certain rules that everybody follows, but no, it doesn't have to be that way. Mm-hmm. If you're thinking about, hey, how can we approach the performance of a character in a totally unique way? Yeah. You might do things completely different than yeah. what the rules say. Yeah, even in the in the world of just films in general, like yeah. a character like Napoleon Dynamite, yeah, that's it's emulated so much. People imitate that so much now because it, it is so unique and different. And you know, why did it take that film to bring a yeah. new character to the world when every other movie kind of has the same yeah. guy, same girl? 
all the yeah, time. It'd be, it'd be cool to take, you know, really take your story and really find unique characters, you know, and how would they move and how would they think and mm -hmm. how would they perform. To me, it's kind of cool if, if one animator has a chance to handle a character to try and flesh that out. Yeah. And, you know, and talk with the other guys and get ideas from different places. But once again, if, if you go out and observe people or you, you, you can think of things in your own life, you can actually see characters around you that are unique in themselves. And it's like, hey, how can I put a little bit of that guy in this character? Because it might create a, a unique character. But perhaps, I don't know, maybe it's too unique for people that it's it's like, well, you know, at this studio, they're not doing that way, so we're not going to do it either. And that that's the one thing about animation that's been kind of a bit disappointing in that in each era, there's one studio that is kind of the the number one studio for animation, and then everybody wants to emulate their mm -hmm. approach. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, and the thing about the Warner Brothers and the Fleischers is they had their own, they took the same principles, but had their own style, their own way of doing things that were unique. And, you know, that's the one cool thing about CG is that that opportunity can happen because CG is so, you know, prevalent and so many people want to do films. And it'd be kind of cool to see more and more unique styles, unique approaches to the animation, uh, humor, drama, whatever it is. Because, you know, CG can be quite filmic or it could be quite cartoony. It can be whatever you want it mm -hmm. to be. Mm -hmm. So yeah. it's kind of exciting. And that's the spirit of animation again is, is how can you imagine something unique? Uh, one danger I do see sometimes is like if you watch certain live action things like framed through stuff and you see how oddly people move sometimes and how just like how an elbow might pop or, yeah. or whatever. If you repeated that stuff like in CG, it would be called out as like, how could you fix that? Because that looks really weird. Or yeah, something. right. But uh, it'd be nice to, to move right. towards. Uh, I don't know. It's really hard to well, do. That, that's why I also like this digital X sheet is that if a guy has a certain sensibility of timing, you can actually apply that sensibility maybe totally different than another animator. If you can have your own sense of timing, your own your own sensibility of it, mm -hmm. again, that'll give uh, sort of unique characters and even the way they time. Yeah. Rather than the same timing for each character in a film. Yeah. yeah. And it it's really looking for those little mistakes too to yeah. see if you can... And I don't think there's any, any part of the process that really stops that from happening. It's just being aware of it and having the time to work on it, you mm -hmm. know? Because anyone can do that. It's yeah. just thinking about it and not being rushed by getting your shot done and all that stuff. Right. Uh, right. Yes. But it's good if, if supervisors in the beginning are aware of it, can instill it in the crew too. Yeah. You know, it's like as a group, that's the approach you're going to take. Mm -hmm. And again, doing another approach that's totally different is cool too. You know, it's like when I have different ways of approaching stuff for different projects mm -hmm. or different types of people or different animators. But I am seeing like in CG, you know, even the rigging style like somebody will create one rigging style and then everybody is emulating it. Mm -hmm. And it's like maybe not the right style for that particular character or that particular right. film. Right. You know, it's like, how can we do this a bit uniquely? Yeah. I think as an animator, your goal should be to be like a, uh, a character actor. Mm -hmm. Is that, is that yeah, the right yeah. term? Like yep. the guy that can play like the mailman and the, yep. and the dog catcher and also the, uh, the criminal in jail, you know? Yep. But I think sometimes what happens is animators may, kind of get stuck on the same type of character and become like a Tom Cruise where it's always Tom Cruise. You right. Know? Um, I don't know. Do you feel... That wasn't my problem. No? To be considered the Tom Cruise. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you've done Jane and Meg and uh, Captain Amelia. Yeah. So do you find that easy to act like a woman? I mean, uh, that's a weird me? question. <laughs> I mean... Well, when I animate... How do you approach that? You know? Well, I don't think of them as women. I think of them as personalities within the story that have 
you know, desires, you know, certain things, fears, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So then, then you're not stuck with sort of standard, oh, it's a woman, so, you know, her, her wrists are close and she's very, you know, stereotypical ideas about how women behave. I was very inspired by uh, 40s actresses like um, Jean Arthur. Jean Arthur in a few of her films is actually quite, she's very feminine and appealing, but at the same time, she uses a lot of physical humor. So when I did Jane, I kind of thought of her a little bit and also some people that I'd known in my, my own life. And that creates humor, you know, when, you, mm-hmm. when you've got a character that's supposedly feminine and, then, and dainty, and then all of a sudden they do stuff that's physical, it's totally uh, disarming to the audience and it can be quite funny if the circumstances are right. And, uh, you know, when you're doing Jane, you're thinking, okay, how is this character different? than Meg. You know, they're both females, but how are they totally different? Well, they, they're from different backgrounds or different life experiences. So what's their body language going to be like? You know, for me, Jane, <clears throat> you know, she had the bustle and all the, the clothing on from, you know, the Victorian era. So her, her actions early on in the film are kind of staccato. You know, she's very sort of British, prim and proper somewhat, and she's very staccato. But later on in the film, as she's becoming more comfortable being in the environment, her actual body language is less staccato, it's softer. So it's really trying to plan that out when you're when you're creating the character. Uh, but Meg, on the other hand, who's also a female, I didn't approach that way. She's kind of more standoffish, and her body language at the beginning of the film is very standoffish. You know, her she's usually looking away from people as she's talking to them. Mm-hmm. And then later in the film, as she becomes more comfortable with Hercules, she's actually looking at him in the eye, She's actually less uh, curvy in her shape. She's not sort of throwing the hip out and looking away from people. She's looking at them in the eye. So it's kind of cool to, to think of the evolution of the personality mm-hmm. uh, rather than thinking it's a woman specifically. Right. And you're even thinking about the evolution of her shape. Yeah, exactly. And the movement. Yeah, and it's yeah. again, it's cool. The audience doesn't catch that stuff, but yeah. there is an evolution of movement and the character itself personality-wise and to me, if you can't find a way of doing that stuff for characters in a film, then there might be something missing in the actual development of the story or the script that things aren't developing. And it depends on the character, of course. Uh, but, you know, even even Dumbo, you know, who's an innocent through the whole thing, you know, he, he actually gains some confidence mm-hmm. towards the film. So there's a development, you know, it's quite subtle and he doesn't verbalize it, but, you know, his behaviors and the way they wrote the idea uh, allows for that to happen. Yeah, yeah. Again, doing a television commercial, you could never experiment with these ideas, so it was really awesome to work on features. And I, I still would love to experiment with some bigger ideas and, and even acting styles. So there's, And that could be very cartoony, but it could be kind of really strong uh, character performance stuff. Mm-hmm. And in CG, even, especially. You know, it's trying to find an opportunity to be able to, again, approach things in this way that I like to approach things uh, in a feature film. Mm-hmm. And a CG film would be kind of cool, too. And when you say especially CG, is it because of the potential of CG or because of a lack of yeah, what you're a talking lack, about? Yeah, I think, I think again, it's so young as a, an, as a medium mm-hmm. that, you know, things have been approached X, Y, and Z ways so far. No pun intended there. <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah, there's a whole open gamut of, of, of approaches I think that can be taken mm-hmm. in developing things it's going to have to develop if it doesn't develop like any of the art forms or mediums it's going to get stagnant and people are going to be in, disinterested in it so it'd be kind of cool to, to be part of trying to push things in a, in a different direction 
That concludes part one of my interview with Ken Duncan. Ken and I sat down and recorded for quite a while, so uh, expect a few more shows with him. Your feedback is very welcome at the Animation Podcast. Stop by the site and comment on this show or any of the posts. You can also email me through the form on the site or directly at animationpodcast at gmail.com. And you may know that I work at Disney, and the film I'm working on is moving into that stage that we affectionately call crunch. So what that means is site updates and email responses probably won't happen that quickly um, until the movie wraps up. I'm still here and I read all your emails, so uh, just keep that in mind if you're expecting a speedy response. Here's a reminder about the new voicemail phone number. It's area code 916-AP-FUNNY, as in Animation Podcast Funny. If you can't remember it, go to theanimationpodcast.com and click on the voicemail link for all the info. I did request on the last show to have someone send me a voicemail through Skype, and my username is Animation Podcast. And the response came all the way from Norway. Hey, Mr. Katis. Uh, my name is Thomas, and I'm a 17-year-old from Norway. Uh, I just want to give you a great big thank you for all the podcasts you posted on your site. I, I really enjoy them, and I just finished listening to James Baxter Part 3. It was really awesome. Uh, congratulations on getting to show number 25. That's amazing, and it's, uh, it's great that you've got your wife to support you there. Um, I just want to say how amazing I think it is that you're making it possible for, even for someone like me, who lives on the other side of the globe almost, to, to learn about animation and, and the business so easily through podcasts. Uh, I'm very much into character design, because uh, I really want to work for Pixar someday, and, but I also do a little, bit, a little bit of animation and a little bit of writing. Because I just, I really like try to get my hands on every part of the process that goes into making one of these animated films. Because I just, I just love all animated films, you know. Um, yeah, so um, keep on the great work that you're doing. It's really inspiring and motivating to hear these great artists talk about their work. And, um, but I know you're busy, so I'll be waiting patiently for upcoming podcasts. And uh, I'm going to try sending this message through Skype as a voicemail so hopefully you'll get it with no problems and uh i don't know maybe one day we could talk animation on skype or i could show you some of my work anyways uh thanks bye thank you for the message thomas i do hope to see your work on the screen someday and you should uh if you want leave a comment on the site and plug your website if you have one that way we can check out your work and here's a message from longtime commenter on the site dan Hi, Clay. Uh, my name is Dan Siciliano uh, from Cary, Illinois. You may have seen my name on your website. I'm so glad to speak to you because I love your show. I'm a huge fan. I really love the shows that you do with um, James Baxter and uh, what he had experiences on um, Beauty and the Beast and Lion King. And about when I get out of high school, I'm going to do 2D animation, either animation or story, and form a studio called Toronto Studios, which we can see in the future. And one last thing, um, if you look on the website, something with uh, with Brendan Manson or Ray Harryhausen or, or other interviews, I left one little request that um, that you didn't seem to get. Um, there was uh, someone named uh, Mitch Schauer, who is the creator of the Angry Beavers. I'm also a huge fan of Avi Melman's voiceover podcast, and I listened to an interview of Richard Horvitz, who was the voice of Daggett, and I he talked about a great great process about Angry Beavers, and uh, I'm such a huge fan of Angry Beavers and Simpsons. 
I have all the Amy Beavers DVDs. So um, maybe you could have an interview with Mitch. I'm very, very sorry about all the requests. Um, I'm also very sorry. And, uh, and one last thing. Um, um, you never heard of Peter Ellenshaw, have you? Um, he did the mad paintings for films like Mary Poppins or um, Treasure Island or 5,000 Leagues, all their films. But uh, he was a wonderful uh, Disney guy and he passed away, unfortunately. So I'm getting it. Rest in peace, Pete. So anyway, Clay, I'm signing off. Thank you very much. Hey, Dan, thanks for calling. And I'll have to check out Avi Melman's voiceover podcast. Thanks for the tip. And yes, I do know of Peter Ellenshaw. He did great work on many, many films. And uh, there's actually a Disney Family Album episode with Peter and his son Harry that uh, if you can track it down, it's worth it. It's, it's pretty good. And I guess I'll be admitting to some of my limited animation exposure. I've never actually seen The Angry Beavers, but based on your enthusiasm, I will definitely give it a shot and check it out. So thanks. Once again, I want to thank our sponsor, AnimationMentor.com, the online animation school. And if you haven't done so already, go to their site, check it out, and sign up for their free monthly newsletter. And that's going to wrap it up for show number 26. As always, thanks for tuning in.